Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing biblical contradictions. I want to run through a list of 10 contradictions in the Bible that appear to be unresolvable. I don't just mean factual inaccuracies like the Earth and entire universe are less than 10,000 years old, or rabbits chew their cud, or pi is equal to 3, but examples where you don't even need to believe the convenient lies of atheist math. I mean cases where the Bible makes two claims that cannot both be true. This certainly isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a few instances where an apologist can't wriggle out with some half-baked analogy about four different witnesses to a car crash or something along those lines. These are examples of mutually incompatible claims being made. The coin flip either came up heads or it came up tails. It can't be both. I have a nice little library of Christian apologetic texts, and one of them is called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, which tries to answer every alleged error or contradiction, and let me just drop it on the desk here. It is over 600 pages long. The existence and size of this book are hilarious given that the two authors believe the Bible is the perfect word of God himself, and I want to read from the introduction here because they do a pretty good job of making the case for a perfect word of God. I never quite understood Christians who took the Bible to be more than just a book, supernaturally inspired, but wouldn't claim it was inerrant. So let's hear what Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe have to say. Quote, Critics claim the Bible is filled with errors. Some even speak of thousands of mistakes. The truth is there is not even one demonstrated error in the original text of the Bible. This is not to say there are not difficulties, but there are not actual errors in the scriptures. Why? Because the Bible is the word of God, and God cannot err. God cannot err, the Bible is the word of God, therefore the Bible cannot err. If the Bible erred in anything it affirms, then God would be mistaken. But God cannot make mistakes. End quote. They then proceed to give scriptural justifications for their premise that God cannot err, which is circular. How do we know the Bible is trustworthy? It's God's word, and God can't make mistakes. How do we know God can't make mistakes? The Bible says so. But I do believe that they're basically correct that if you're going to say the Bible is the word of God, you should embrace what seems to follow. The Bible cannot have any mistakes. So if you're someone who takes the Bible seriously as an authority, here are a few relevant passages. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2, Paul writes of a God who cannot lie. And in Romans chapter 9 verse 6, he refers to the scriptures as the word of God. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Psalms 119 verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. And Jesus said himself in John 17, 17, God's word is truth. Some Christians try to draw some kind of distinction between inspiration and inerrancy, but as the authors of the big book of Bible difficulties tell us, quote, inerrancy is a logical result of inspiration. For inerrancy means wholly true and without error, and what God breathes out or inspires must be wholly true or inerrant. End quote. But they elaborate since they're writing a 600-page book on how confusing and contradictory the Bible is. Quote, While the Bible is the word of God and as such cannot have any errors, nonetheless this does not mean there are no difficulties in it. However, as St. Augustine wisely noted, if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in scripture, 
It is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. End quote. And this perfectly encapsulates the mindset of fundamentalists and inerrantists. Their starting assumption is that the Bible is perfect. So whenever you point out one of these contradictions, they think you just haven't understood. And I can relate to this. I remember believing in high school that there was probably some wise Christian who could effortlessly answer all my objections and doubts. But eventually, I realized that person didn't exist. And for all the Christians who start out assuming that the Bible doesn't make mistakes and refuse to see any contradiction as such, you have to ask what, if anything, would convince them to change their mind. If the answer is nothing, then they have removed themselves from rational discourse. They've announced that reason and evidence can't change their mind in this area. If they're open to evidence, then that means looking at textual problems in good faith and being honest when you don't really know why the Bible seems to be contradicting itself. At a certain point, you just have to ask which is simpler that the creator of language itself needs help clarifying what he said from these two primates, or that the Bible was written by primates and that's why it can't get through a chapter without contradicting itself, or making wildly inaccurate claims, or palpably immoral prescriptions. The fact is that even people who believe the Bible is inerrant in the Word of God don't spend much time reading it, and that's because it is a terrible book. They know it's boring and pointless to read, and that's why it's a chore to do it. It's terribly written, largely irrelevant, provides very little by way of sound advice, creates a vision for society that's thankfully far removed from the society we live in today. It's laden with inaccuracies and pointless, winding diversions that even committed Christians have a hard time bringing themselves to spend any time actually reading. The Bible is, without a doubt, the most overrated book in history. Which isn't to say that every part of it is terrible. Some of it is decidedly not terrible. But it's clearly not in the same league as other quote-unquote great books, or other books that are in the canon. So let's get to these contradictions, and we'll talk more at the end about what they actually mean. Number 1. Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 Genesis 1 and 2 are actually not complementary accounts, but two different creation accounts written by different authors. The points they make are different, and the authors even use different words for God. But let's just focus on the order of creation. In Genesis 1, the order of creation is spelled out, and it's clear that God created the other animals before he created humans. But according to Genesis 2, man was created first, Genesis 2.7, and then the other animals later, Genesis 2.19. Additionally, according to Genesis 1, plants were created on the third day, and only later, on the sixth day, were humans created. But in Genesis 2, it says the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground before there were any plants or herbs on the earth. Genesis 2, 4, and 7. In Genesis 1, both male and female were created at the same time. But in Genesis 2, God first created Adam, then creates all the other animals to provide companionship. And when none of them are sufficient, that's when God makes a woman out of Adam's rib. Number 2, 1 Chronicles 18, verses 2 Samuel 8. So I like these next two because they have to do with numbers, so it really couldn't be any more straightforward. In 2 Samuel 8.4, King David took 700 horsemen. Quote, And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen. End quote. And in 1 Chronicles 18.4, David took 7,000 horsemen. Quote, And David took from him a thousand chariots and 7,000 horsemen. Number 3, 1 Chronicles 21 versus 2 Samuel 24. Does David buy a threshing floor for 50 shekels of silver, as it says in 2 Samuel 24, 24? 
or did he pay 600 shekels of gold, as it says in 1 Chronicles 21-25? For this one, apologists tried to take advantage of some of the ambiguities in the text to try to reconcile the payment discrepancies. They say the author just decided to exclude some of the things David bought in 2 Samuel from the final count. It's a stretch, but it's not impossible. However, they really have no good answer for the 700 versus 7,000 contradiction. Number 4, Micah 7 versus Jeremiah 17. Does Yahweh's anger last forever or not forever? It's one of those two, but the Bible says that it's both forever and not forever. Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. End quote. Jeremiah 17:4. Through your own fault you will lose the inheritance I gave you, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. Number 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 versus Deuteronomy chapter 24. Will children be punished for the sins of their parents? Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. End quote. But in Deuteronomy 24, 16, we find a far more sensible, just, and individualistic ruling. Quote, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. End quote. Number 6, 1 Samuel 21, verses Mark 2. So, getting halfway into the New Testament here. In Mark 2, 26, Jesus claims that at the time David ate the consecrated bread, Abiathar was the high priest. But in 1 Samuel 21, 16, David ate the consecrated bread when Ahimelech was the high priest. The, the sort of first moment was when I realized that the Bible was not inerrant. Um, I had, uh, my, my first year at Princeton Theological Seminary, I was taking a course on the Gospel of Mark, which was based on an interpretation of the Greek text. And so I, I knew Greek by this time, and we, we, we had to translate the entire Gospel of Mark, and we had to write a, we did an interpretation of every, every verse, you know, it was very deep and detailed. And I had to write a, a term paper, and I wrote a paper on a passage in Mark where Jesus is talking about a story in the Old Testament that happens, and he, he says that this account happened when Abiathar was the high priest. This is in Mark chapter 2. When you read the Old Testament account, actually, uh, this, the account that he's summarizing didn't take place when Abiathar was the high priest. It happened when his father Ahimelech was the high priest. So I write this 30-page paper arguing that even though Jesus said that Abiathar was the high priest. It didn't really mean that Abiathar was the high priest. Uh, he knew that Ahimelech was the high priest. So I write this long paper, and the, the professor reads the paper. He likes the paper. gives me an A because I had this complicated grammatical argument. But at the end of it, he said, maybe Mark just made a mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, huh, that'd be easier than 30 pages of dancing around the problem and coming up with this fancy grammatical thing. You know, in fact, yeah, maybe Mark just made a mistake. And once I, once I recognized that there could be a mistake, it mm. opened up the floodgates. Uh, and I started finding mistakes without wanting to, and then I started wanting to, and then I started finding them all over the place. Number seven, Matthew, James, and Romans versus Romans and Galatians. So, it's an age-old question for Christianity. By faith or by works? Galatians 2.16 Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3.11 echoes that view. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. 
And in Romans 3.20, it declares, No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. But in Romans 2.13, it says, For it is not by hearing the law that people are put right with God, but by doing what the law commands. And in James 2.24, it says, By works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Sometimes apologists claim that even if there are contradictions in the Bible, these are confined to peripheral issues and never relate to quote-unquote salvation issues. But this faith versus works discrepancy would seem to violate that claim. And Jesus didn't exactly clear things up when he said in Matthew 25 that those who don't feed the least of these as well as give them water, housing, clothing, and more will depart into eternal fire. To me, that sounds like an endorsement of a works view. And if you weren't paranoid enough about not getting into heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who, quote, practice lawlessness, in other words, those who don't follow the law, will not be admitted to heaven. So the faith versus works debate will rage on, because the Bible contradicts itself on that point, which happens to be a salvation issue. Number 8, Matthew 1, verses Luke 3. Joseph was Jesus' father, or I guess his stepfather, but who was Joseph's father? Luckily, Matthew and Luke both provide genealogies that are explicitly, without ambiguity, for Joseph. Matthew chapter 1 says Joseph's father was Jacob, but Luke chapter 3 says Joseph's father was Eli. So that means right at the beginning of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have contradictions. Apologists have tried to reconcile this by claiming one genealogy was for Mary, but both authors clearly intended to give a genealogy of Joseph. If you're absolutely dying to hear more about this, you can listen back to the Christmas episode about prophecy and the birth of Christ. I go into the numerous reasons we know these passages are not about Mary, besides the fact that it's explicitly stated that they're both for Joseph. Number 9, Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, verses Matthew chapter 9. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter at his behest, but was Jairus' daughter dying or already dead when he asked for Jesus' help? Well, it depends which gospel you read. In Luke and Mark, Jairus says that his daughter is, quote, dying. Mark 5, 22 through 23, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. However, in Matthew 9:18, it says, While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. So was Jairus's daughter dead or dying? Or rather, what did Jairus report to Jesus? Number 10, Mark versus John. Did Jesus die before or after Passover? Mark says that Jesus had a Passover meal and was crucified the next morning. But in John, Jesus is arrested and condemned before Passover. So, so what is the hardest thing to reconcile? If you were going to point out one thing that you think stood the best chance of, of toppling the whole house of cards, what is that thing? Well, that, the, the example I just gave is the one that I use uh, if I want to convince, you know, if I've got one example, uh, I, I walk them through what happens in, uh, in John's gospel, because John 
explicitly dates the day of Jesus' death as the day before that he explicitly says what time of day and which day it was on. And the mm -hmm. Gospel of Mark also explicitly says what time of day and which day it was on. And they just flat out contradict each other. The Gospel of John says Jesus died the day before the Passover, and the Gospel mm -hmm. of Mark says he died the day after the Passover, and they both can't be right. And so when you take somebody actually through the text and show this to them today, I mean, when I, when I talk with fundamentalist Christians and try and point out, you know, uh, then th that, that does it. In the year 1860, William Henry Burr anonymously published his book, Self-Contradictions of the Bible. He concisely lays out nearly 150 examples of the Bible contradicting itself, from whether or not God gets tired, to whether or not Jesus taught non-resistance, to the fate of the earth, and so on. Given the year was 1860, you can imagine why he opted to publish anonymously. I've linked the PDF in the show notes, and it's an interesting read. And as for the contradictions listed today, it's not a matter of different perspectives. You don't need to learn Hebrew or Greek. 700 doesn't equal 7,000. Jesus died before Passover or after Passover. Either Jesus was right about who the high priest was, or the author of 1 Samuel was right. Keep in mind how easy it would have been for the divine author or inspirer of the Bible to add a single sentence of clarification, and how that would make the entire problem go away. Even if you think these are only apparent contradictions, what is the benefit of unclear and apparently contradictory passages? Why couldn't God have added that single sentence of clarification? So I think it's important to ask when it comes to contradictions in the Bible. So what? What if there are contradictions? Does that mean I can't be a Christian? What does it mean? For one thing, it means the Bible is not inerrant. There are mistakes in the Bible. Contradictions also tell us that the document isn't reliable regarding the parts of the story that contradict, such as in the resurrection account. If two accounts contradict, they can't both be correct. Either only one of the accounts are accurate, or neither of the accounts are accurate. Let's take the two authors of that book, Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, seriously in their reasoning that 1. God cannot err, 2. The Bible is the word of God, and 3. Therefore the Bible cannot err. It's pretty obvious that the Bible makes errors, and not just in the form of contradictions. So that means that either the Bible is not the word of God, or God can make mistakes, in which case, why call him God? The presence of errors also means that we should marginally lower our credence in other claims made in the text. And finally, the presence of contradictions implies that God, if he exists, didn't care enough about the contents of the Bible to make sure that there weren't any problems, which is something he easily could have done. Apologists will often claim that the copies of the Bible we have may be filled with contradictions and errors, but the original text of the Bible is in fact inerrant. But of course, nobody has that, so we can't investigate the claim. To say that the quote-unquote original Bible has no errors is unfalsifiable and a statement of faith, because we have no access to it. It's a statement of faith, which is to say that this conversation has been removed from the realm of rational discourse. They're admitting that their belief about the inerrancy of the Bible is not responsive to evidence and reason, but is rather based on faith alone. But even if we accept this original text argument, there's a problem because God happens to be omnipotent and omniscient. Why wouldn't God preserve his perfect word with the perfect communication of his message? It would seem kind of irrational to create this perfect book 
and then not bother to make sure it continues existing and protect it from subsequent alterations. Let's just assume God exists. Which is more likely, that God created a perfect word and didn't care to preserve it, or that God just didn't have anything to do with the Bible? God easily could have made the Bible inerrant, and he could have at least ensured that it didn't contradict itself, which tells us something important about how much God, if he exists, cares about the Bible. That's all I have for you today. I'm happy to announce that Chris Matheson, former guest and author of The Story of God, has been kind enough to donate signed copies of his most recent book, The Trouble with God. The next three new patrons on any level of support will receive a signed copy of the book, so if you were thinking of becoming a patron, now would definitely be the time to do so. The Story of God and The Trouble with God are both hilarious. I genuinely laughed throughout both books. Chris is a very funny writer, and it's also thought-provoking stuff. I also have a new Christopher Hitchens-level patron to welcome to the exclusive and coveted and illustrious Patron Hall of Fame, and that would be Mr. Nathan Grounds. Thank you, sir. So I want to thank my new Patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, and Nathan Grounds. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but holy water burns your skin, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.